welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, my name is Amber Melvin. Uh, I'm a resident at the University of Rochester Medical Center. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Sunil Prasad regarding the use of VA ECMO in shock. We will discuss patient selection, technique, and management of patients on ECMO. Dr. Prasad is currently the Chief of Cardiac Surgery at the University of Rochester and is an expert on heart failure and mechanical circulatory support. Dr. Prasad, we will start with a case. A 56-year-old male presents to the emergency department with an anterolateral STEMI and is taken emergently to the cath lab for potential intervention. His hemodynamics declined during the time that it took him to get to the cath lab suite, and during access, he has an episode of ventricular fibrillation, which is successfully defibrillated. He remains persistently hypotensive, and you are consulted for emergent placement of VA ECMO. The first question I have for you is what additional information, if any, would you want to know? I think uh, one of the important things about doing, taking care of patients in cardiogenic shock is to find out their neurological status. So I'd want to know, is the patient intubated? Is he awake? Uh, did he have um, any other sort of cognitive uh, deficiencies? So that would be my uh, first uh, uh, composure. It looks like this patient needs uh, support in order for him to go and get his uh, studies done. So barring any sort of uh, absolute neurological contraindications, I'd probably place this patient on ECMO so that he can get a diagnostic, if not therapeutic, intervention. If the patient has a normal neurologic exam prior to coming to the cath lab, is he a candidate for VA ECMO at this time? Uh, I think so. What would be your choice for an access site? Well, the um, question for him is he's probably going to uh, get a catheterization and probably uh, hopefully some stenting. So I think the easiest way to put somebody on ECMO is through a femoral location in an adult um, because it's easily accessible compared to other areas. um, And it's an area that two people can work across the field from. So one person can be getting arterial access and one person can be getting femoral access also during that time, if the patient had an arrest, somebody could be doing CPR and someone could imagine the airway. So I think that's why femoral access is, is, is probably the easiest way to take care of someone that's needing cardiogenic uh, ECMO or eCPR ECMO because you can control the airway, continue compressions, and gain access. What are the sequence of events in acute cardiogenic shock when putting someone on VA ECMO with regards to stenting, balloon pumps, potential for coronary artery bypass surgery, and then VA ECMO? So I think um, putting somebody on shock and on VA ECMO usually will be a, a bridge to decision. And so um, I think that if somebody has true shock and what I would define shock with would be somebody that their, um, their oxygen carrying capacity of the heart's not meeting the demands of their body. So either it's a, a lactic acidosis, it's renal failure, or it's pending hypotension that's not um, suitable for perfusion pressure to the end organs, brain, kidney, liver, and so on. So I think that's where ECMO comes in versus 
the other therapies such as balloon pumps, which can augment blood pressure, but not per se give direct cardiac output flow uh, to, to that. And stents can also improve flow to the heart, but the heart may be so injured that it may not be able to deliver cardiac output to the end organs. So you can fix the pump, but the pump may take time to heal. So I think that's when you start thinking about putting ECMO in first. Outside of um, neurologic events, are there any other contraindications to VA ECMO in this scenario? Um, I think in this scenario, if the patient had a, a DNR, or, uh, that would probably be a, a contraindication. And now, more often than not, we're having to uh, go through uh, individuals uh, of their wishes, which is appropriate uh, to see if they're candidates uh, for ECMO. So if they did have a do not resuscitate, I would not put them on ECMO because ECMO is continuous mechanical resuscitation. Um, the other, other contraindications for uh, somebody in this situation is if the patient had known peripheral vascular disease uh, or aortic disease, such as uh, occluded aorta or significant iliac, femoral iliac disease, that uh, retrograde ECMO circuit in that patient could be catastrophic. Uh, so the patient would probably be better off getting uh, to the cath lab and opened uh, there to open the vessels and probably ECMO from another direction, either subclavian uh, or central. Okay, next we will review um, the technique for putting someone on ECMO. Um, can you go over the steps of VA ECMO? Sure, I think... Uh, the, the important things of putting somebody on VA ECMO, you still have to uh, take care of the patient. And what I mean by that is you have to make sure the airway is secure. So just like everywhere else, you could be going into the groin and trying to get access, but you have to make sure that you, they're oxygenating. You have to make sure that they don't aspirate and, and vomit in, in that part of that code or that part where they're going downhill very fast. So I think managing the airway then you have to make sure that they're maximizing their circulation while you're putting VA ECMO in. And that could be through CPR, it could be through inotropes, it could be through pressors, it could be through ACLS protocol. So those are the things even before we start thinking about putting this patient on ECMO, in parallel processing, all these things should be going through your head. Is he getting ventilated? Is the airway secure? Are we maximizing their circulation? Are we accessing the groin? You obviously want to you know, prep as quickly as possible uh, to get that. And then the individuals that are doing the access need to start running the room. And what that means is that we have to delegate at that point uh, to the staff that's there or the other physicians or providers that are also possibly watching this code or this watching this downhill treatment is somebody has to be getting the drapes, somebody has to be getting the, the pump, somebody has to make sure perfusion is called, somebody has to uh, make sure that you have the tools available and a lot of places have ultrasound and I still believe that ultrasound access is still appropriate even if someone's in cardiogenic shock because some of the vascular injuries of going in the back wall or going into the vein instead of the artery or getting a retroperitoneal bleed uh, are quite significant. You've taken someone in cardiogenic shock and turned them into hemorrhagic shock in addition to cardiogenic shock. So I think getting your access straightened away is very important. You can do a small cut down real quick. You can do a ultrasound guided. And then in the worst case scenario, if you do not have access to those instruments, you do blind sticks. And a lot of times with cardiogenic shock, you may not feel a pulse. Uh, it may be very faint or you think you feel it or not. 
then you have to use your landmarks. And as I tell uh, the residents is, if somebody's in true shock or CPR, go ahead and cangulate whatever you get. So if we end up with four lines, then we can use all four lines. We can use one for the venous cannula, one for the arterial cannula, one for arterial monitoring, and one for resuscitation. So that's how I kind of approach someone that's in cardiogenic shock with VA ECMO. How do you decide on cannula size? So we did a lot of work in the lab uh, where we looked at uh, cannula size and flows. And so a lot of this is actually published in the IFUs for these cannulas that we use for aortic and venous cannulas. And you can go on the websites of these things, either Medtronic or Edwards or Sarns, and they'll actually tell you what the flow uh, of these cannulas are over pressure. And so what we learned is that with a 15 arterial cannula and a 25 venous, you can flow about 4.4 uh, to 4.5 liters. And so in most patients, that would be a cardiac index of two. Um, so that's probably an appropriate cannula size for resuscitation because that gives you more flow than they have. Uh, it's not super humic, super flow than they need for cardiac output. It also minimizes the, the distal vascular complications because a 15 will put you at five millimeters on your outer diameter. And so if you've got a, a, a common femoral that's six uh, millimeters, you'll still get flow around the cannula to the distal perfusion component of it. If you need to put somebody that's bigger and you need that they need to have more flow, you can do a 17. And we found that a 17 and a 25 circuit will give you about 5.8 liters. And that should be enough cardiac output for most people, even with a BMI of 2, 2.25. Um, so I think the smallest cannula you can get to achieve the cardiac output you need for that, that patient's uh, uh, PSA. Do you routinely use reperfusion catheters after fem femoral femoral VA ECMO? So I didn't routinely use them because we use 15s um, a lot. But as the landscape is changing, I think it's very reasonable to put a reperfusion cannula in at the time um, after you put them on ECMO. I think it just takes the uh, leg complications to a much lesser degree. Not to say you won't have any, but you take out the perspective of uh, having a rigor mortis you know, uh, 12 hours after you put a ECMO cannula in. So, going back to the reperfusion cannula. So there's several ways you can put a reperfusion cannula. You can do an anti-grade stick and use a six French catheter and then Y it in with a, with a stopcock to the arterial cannula uh, lure lock. The other way you can do it is you can go to the uh, dorsalis pedis and put a five French um, micropuncture kit cannula in there and wire it in. So there's multiple ways to get blood to the leg. And uh, different institutions do it different ways. Um, but I think the smaller the cannula, uh, the better it is. The large cannula, you should probably put one in. Can you comment on any relevant anatomy? So I think where <clears throat> you're trying to do your femoral stick, you're obviously trying to aim for the, the common femoral vessel. And where you're doing your venous stick, you're trying to aim for the, the venous, the femoral venous site. Uh, if you're doing a uh, thoracic um, cannulation, you're trying to aim for the axillary artery um, and to make sure that they don't have any problems there. The other thing that you can do is you can put the venous drainage into the uh, right internal jugular. 
So those are probably the, the most relevant anatomy is, you know, if, if they have big enough femoral vessels, they have no iliac um, femoral uh, disease, if they don't have an IVC filter, so that if you're putting a femoral cannula in, you won't run into your IVC filter. Uh, the other choices are going above the heart and doing a either percutaneous stick in the axillary artery and putting in a 15, or doing a small cut down uh, and putting in a larger cannula into the subclavian and then using a large 25 French uh, into the right IJ. You can you can run you know four to five liters of flow. In my experience, the uh, subclavian technique, I don't use um, a graft material because of the overflow. The uh, 15 French cannula can go directly in with a purse string into the femoral, into the subclavian artery. And uh, the way that we check to make sure there's distal perfusion to that arm is that either you can put a pulse ox on there or you can put a radial art line. And if you got a radial art line and you got a 15 on that same arm, and your art line shows you've got a mean pressure of 60 and your pulse ox is showing 100% with a good reading, that arm is not ischemic. And in our experience, that is very unlikely to happen. I haven't had to put a single reperfusion in the arm. It seems that the subclavian has enough collateralization, uh, just as they do when they do kids and they do a true BT shunt, that, um, that there's collaterals to the arm. So it seems like a very good approach. It's also almost central ECMO where the majority of ECMO is going anagrade versus the groin where the majority of ECMO is going retrograde. So it's a very viable option. Plus, they can also be ambulatory at that time. Um, can you review the different type of uh, pumps used in the circuit and the mechanics of those? Sure. So um, there's many pumps out there, but I think uh, we kind of will break it down to the most common pumps, which are centrifugal pumps now. Um, the pumps that are used in no specific order are uh, the Centromag, uh, the Rotaflow, CardioHealth, and uh, a SARNS. And so the idea of these pumps uh, is to obviously push uh, blood through the oxygenator. So the way that these pumps are set up is that the drainage, the venous drainage, uh, comes directly into the pump inlet. The pump is then spins using a centrifugal pump and we'll get a little bit more detail into what that means. Then the pump then pushes the blood into an oxygenator. The oxygenator itself has an internal resistance uh, depending on the flow rate. Uh, as the flow rate goes up, the resistance goes up in the, in the uh, containment of the oxygenator. The oxygenator then outlet then goes to the patient. So that's where the pump sits. It's, so it sits before the oxygenator between, and right is the first thing that should be coming from the patient. The centrifugal pumps are great because they seem to have a lot less hemolysis, but they are very afterload and preload dependent. And what that means is that if you have a, a centrifugal pump and you're flowing five liters and your mean blood pressure goes up, that your flow that's delivered from the pump will go down. And therefore your oxygen carrying capacity, your resuscitation is reduced because of the afterload. The second part is the pumps are an enormous amount of vacuum because it's a closed circuit for cardiopulmonary bypass, which is an open reservoir. The, the centrifugal pumps use a closed reservoir. So if you're hypovolemic, the pump will then entrain air uh, or cause hemolysis because it's pulling at a, current, uh, a constant RPM and your flows will go down. So if you're actually 
your preload goes down, you should go down on these centrifugal pumps on the RPM so that you don't entrain air and you can come out of suction. So the, what's good about the pumps is that less hemolysis, uh, less energy consumption. Uh, what's bad about the pumps is their afterload and preload very dependent uh, uh, on these pumps. And some of the pumps, uh, the centrifugal pumps, we've uh, moved away from anticoagulation in certain situations uh, where you know we had patients that had head bleeds and we stopped anticoagulation. We had patients that had retroperitoneal bleeds and we stopped anticoagulations. We had patients that were trauma patients with long bone fractures and we stopped anticoagulation. Uh, we had um, uh, patients that had GI bleeds and we stopped anticoagulation. And what we found empirically because we've had to stop anticoagulation for a clinical reason was these pumps tend not to clot off uh, when they're flowing at full flow, uh, four or five liters. And so this may be a great advantage to centrifugal pumps downstream by eliminating the anticoagulation and all the complications uh, that come from anticoagulation. Uh, what are the principles of management of a patient on VA ECMO and what is the expected course for this patient? So I think um, on VA ECMO, we have to kind of look at the pathology. So I always say that the patient determines the course, not us and not the machine. So what that means in the simplest terms is if you have somebody that had a normal EF, went to the cath lab, had a le uh, LED step placed that misfired, they had a fibrillatory arrest, they could not get them back with CPR, they called us for ECMO, we put them on ECMO, they fixed the stent, and the patient's heart has an EF of 5%. I would say that patient should be given a lot of time, whether it's three days, seven days, because the potential for him to come back to a normal EF is great because it's a short injury. You have a patient that um, has a ablation done because they are in heart failure with atrial fibrillation, their EF is 25%, and they go and they code during that ablation. That patient has a much different outcome because ECMO is not gonna make them better than when they had their ablation or three months from now. And so when their EF is 5%, uh, the chances for them are less likely that they're gonna be able to recover to be better than they are or even recover to where they are. And the question is, those patients should be on ECMO to decision where are they an LVAD candidate? Are they a transplant candidate? Uh, looking for recovery, but knowing that recovery is not gonna be better than what they started at 20, 25%. Then there are the patients that have a pulmonary embolus. And so those patients usually have normal hearts and they get placed on ECMO because they have a large PE burden causing afterload or hypoxemia, either one of the two or both. And those patients, if you can get them on time and put them on VA ECMO, their survival is great because you can minimize the amount of blood going through the heart and minimize the work of the lungs and get them to surgery, surgical embolectomy or get them to TPA or angiojet to, to get these things out. And their chance of recovery is very good, so I would keep them on ECMO for a few days and they should still, they should recover very well. So. I think the principles of VA ECMO really depends on what you're trying to treat. A lot of patients, because we're a heart transplant center, have some sort of myocarditis at times, a few times a year. And those patients we may keep on ECMO for you know 20 to 30 days on VA ECMO while they're getting the plasmapheresis every other day for a couple weeks. So it's, it's hard to, to bulk everybody into one single thing for VA ECMO. I think the patient decides how they're doing. And again, the goal of ECMO, VA ECMO, is to deliver 
enough oxygenated blood to the end organs uh, to meet the demands. And so as long as you're doing that and the patients are improving uh, slowly, that's what's key. What means that their creatinine is coming from 5 to 4.6, but they're making 40 cc's a year an hour where they were aneuric. So those are all the little things. So I think we still, we still got to look at the patient for VA ECMO. How do you manage vasopressors and inotropes in a patient on VA ECMO? So I um, am at the belief that we should substitute mechanical support for pharmaceutical support. What that means is that when a patient is on Levo and Vaso and Neo, uh, those are poisons going into the body that affects every cell. So I would prefer my strategy for ECMO to maximize the mechanical flow of the machine to take them off the poisons. So some patients still need uh, some sort of pressors because they still have vasoplegia and the circuit cannot overtake the vasoplegia. So I would rather run full ECMO RPMs and decrease the pressors to nothing. That would be my first strategy. I think inotropes are important. I think if the heart is decompressed, that inotropes are, are good for continuing ejection so you don't have areas of stasis. So I think those are the probably the biggest guiding principles. So if you've got a patient with ECMO at five liters of flow and their pressure is 90, I would start them on milrone. I think if they're if you've got a patient that has a, a flow of five liters and their blood pressure is mean blood pressure is 50, I would start them on epinephrine. So I would try to avoid pressors because pressors add poisons to the whole body. And the second thing is they add afterload, especially in the retrograde circuit. You're starting to add afterload, especially use vasopressin in your mesenteric vessels. Um, you add a lot of afterload, so you're not going to be able to deliver enough blood as the as the blood starts marching up your aorta. It's going to go to the hole with the least resistance. And so, if you start using these pressors that are specific for kidneys or or intestines, you're not going to get as much flow as you think you're getting because the flow is going somewhere else. Uh, with regard to LV decompression. When do you use a left ventricular vent, and what's your strategy for that? So that's a good question. So I think uh, for LV vent, uh, it's important uh, to have the ventricle decompressed. So my first strategy would be to maximize the drainage of the ECMO circuit. So if we can decrease the, the RA pressures, uh, then we have less blood going through the heart. Uh, you'll have your coronary sinus return and your bronchial circulation coming back to the left side of the heart. But if the heart is empty and it's getting five to 600 cc's and it's not filling up and it's ejecting, then I wouldn't do anything. I think that you're down on the Frank Starling curve. I think if you see clinical signs such as pulmonary edema or severe MR, uh, I think then you probably have to put a vent in if you can't get that ventricle to check with inotropes. There's a couple, couple ways to, uh, to vent. Um, one way is to use an impella uh, across the aortic valve. Uh, that is a good mechanical vent. Uh, it adds some complexity of having uh, a, another motor in there that can cause hemolysis, but it is, is a very viable uh, vent. The other vent is to use a transeptal puncture. So you go up the vein, go into the right atrium, cross into the septum to the left atrium, and then put either a 22 tandem heart cannula in you could decompress the uh, LA before the blood goes into the uh, LV. And the last way is to use uh, an eight French uh, 
suction catheter directly across the aortic valve like you're doing a TAVR, and that can get you, you know, you know 800 to 1.2 liters of flow. And that's uh, uh, one that has uh, very little hemolysis. So you can do direct suction through a catheter, you can use an impella for mechanical decompression, or you can do preload of the LV by using a um, tandem uh, left atrial uh, vent. Do you anticoagulate everyone on VA ECMO? And if so, what's your strategy? So I think with uh, a large breadth of experience with patients that were not anticoagulated, you know, in 2010, 11, 12, and so on, we've gone to not using anticoagulation on ECMO. Um, one of the reasons being is that there's no absolute evidence that anticoagulation is needed in a closed circuit. There's obviously strong evidence that in an open reservoir system for an area of stasis, uh, you need anticoagulation. So we tend not to anticoagulate our patients by routine, as long as they're maintaining full flow, uh, which would be a cardiac index of two. Uh, we do anticoagulate patients where there are secondary indications uh, done by data, and what that means is that the patient has atrial fibrillation uh, uh, to anticoagulate them. If the patient has an LV thrombus, to anticoagulate them. If the patient has a DVT, to go ahead and uh, uh, anticoagulate them. If the patient has uh, a coagulation uh, pathology, uh, to go ahead and add Coumadin to their regimen. We've done all these things, uh, and depending on secondary indications for anticoagulation. So I think that's where it is. By not anticoagulating the pump, We've had just a few uh, oxygenator change, change outs, but in, a, in an institution that has over 100 ECMOs a year, it's, uh, it's very meaningless to change out one or two when we don't have to uh, do blood samples, uh, we don't have to run all these extra lab tests, and then we've minimized our chances of getting hit uh, because the patients don't see heparin. We've also minimized our, our bleeding uh, uh, rate because the patients don't, don't bleed uh, as much uh, without anticoagulation. And a lot of that was learned by taking care of patients over the last decade that had indications to stop bleeding, such as head bleeds, as we talked about before, or retroperitoneal bleeds, or GI bleeds, or long bone fractures, that we had to stop anticoagulation, or they had hit, uh, that uh, we had to stop the heparin, and then start our gatraban, and different things that that made us learn that anticoagulation with full flow uh, is not an immediate thrombosis of these centrifugal pumps. Um, lastly, I would like to review the potential complications and pitfalls um, of patients on VA ECMO and how to manage those. First, I'd like to start with how to manage a patient with low flow alarms on VA ECMO. So, if a patient has low flow alarms on VA ECMO, the first thing to do is check the circuit. So while somebody's checking the patient, which the nurse should have been doing during that time, you have to check the circuit to make sure there's no kinks in the line. Then you have to make sure that there's no clot in the pump head or the line or the oxygenator. And you have to make sure that um, the, uh, the pump is set at the right speed. So those are all the little things that you have to do is you have to check the pump make sure that there's no resistance built into the pump that's decreasing your flow or the settings aren't correct. The next uh, component of that is why is there low flow? So as we talked about before, these are uh, centrifugal pumps, majority of them, and they're sensitive both afterload and preload. So afterload, 
mean blood pressure 100. Is that why you're getting a low flow alarm? Preload. Is the patient hypovolemic? Because the pump can only pump what's in that venous cannula, the reservoir in the, in the body of that venous cannula. So those are the things I would look at to, to do that. So in a low flow alarm, uh, I would usually, if it triggers, I would actually go down on the RPMs and see if we're not in training or collapsing that venous cannula inside the cava and then see how uh, it does. If, there, if you start going down on the flows and the flows go down and down and down, that means you probably need volume. Can you comment on vascular complications in VA ECMO and how to manage those? A lot of vascular complications. So vascular complications are probably one of the banes of intermediate survival in ECMO patients. Now, what that means is that you can have a patient on VA ECMO, you can do all the things you need to do, you know, give them time, reduce their afterload, give them inotropy, take care of their pulmonary hypertension, get them stented and revascularized, put a VAD in if their uh, LV is not recovering. You can do all those things, but at the end, if you have a vascular complication, such as a dead leg, uh, the patient's survival goes down. We published that a few years ago uh, in, a, in a paper in the Vascular Journal, but that's the problem. The problem is you have to be able to identify a vascular complication immediately, and then you have to intervene. So we talked about reperfusion. So you have eCPR on the medical floor and you put a cannulas in and you did it at the bedside, probably not the right time for a reperfusion cannula. <clears throat> Once you get the ECMO in, you start getting the patient resuscitated, probably the next best place is that patient to go to the cath lab for a reperfusion cannula. That's what we tend to do, is that you go down there so that we can put a reperfusion cannula and we can quickly shoot the leg to make sure it's viable. Because if we have the opportunity to reperfuse that leg in one hour after they go on ECMO, then we have a less chance of having a cold leg um, downstream. So I think that's an important um, uh, part of vascular complications, identify them early. <clears throat> if, you, if you have a transfer ECMO that has uh, a vascular complication, a cold leg, uh, rigor mortis, uh, sloughing, uh, ischemia, unfortunately there's not much you can do. You can do fasciotomies to decompress the, the pressure, but that patient's probably gonna end up with an amputation. So probably the best thing, if the rest of the patient is viable, so the patient's neurologically intact, they're a VAD candidate, or they're uh, a transplant candidate, or they're a recovery candidate, is probably get that dead tissue, ischemic tissue, out of their body circulation so, they, so their kidneys can survive. And so those are probably the things, is identify them. If it's dead tissue, try to get the dead tissue out as quickly as possible. If it's a live tissue, bring blood flow to it. Um, can you talk about stroke and neurologic events in patients on ECMO? So <clears throat> there's, um, there could be a lot of uh, neurological events uh, depending on usually the sequelae of getting them on ECMO and VA ECMO. So in a retrograde system, it would be hard to have the ECMO cannula throw a clot up the aorta, up the femoral, up the iliac, up the aorta, around the arch, through the carotid, and into the brain if the heart's pumping a little bit at all. It'd be very, very hard to do, uh, to do that. That being said, you, it can happen. Um, you can have clot that can go up into the, the, to the lumbars uh, that does occasionally happen. 
uh, and then they can get paralysis. You can have clot that goes up into the renals or the mesenteric vessels. So you can definitely have that. It's just unusual to go all the way from your groin, uh, ass backwards, all the way up into the brain. Central ECMO, you definitely can. If you put in the ascending, you just as any just as any cannula, you could be shooting clot or air right into the arch vessels. So I think those are the challenges. So I think stroke as a direct complication of retrograde ECMO would be very challenging uh, uh, because the uh, to push the a, piece, a particulate matter retrograde up your aorta, it'd be very challenging uh, because it's going to want to go downstream no matter what. Air, on the other hand, maybe if you train air and the patient's head is up, of course, air may go up there. But still, I think it's less likely. Okay, that's all I have. So thank you, Dr. Prasad, for talking to us today about BA ECMO. It was a pleasure. Thank you.